Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 98. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Today, we've got a very, very special guest, someone we've wanted to have on the pod here for a long time. We've got Mr. Robert Deagle. Robert, how are you doing? Uh, very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome to the show. And, and thank you so much for joining, too. I know it took mm-hmm. us a, a while to get you on here, but really, <laughs> really happy to do so. Mm-hmm. And you came in with some great ideas of things that we wanted to talk about, actually things that we've talked about a bit on the podcast before. I remember a while ago, one of our listeners wrote in and commented on one of the topics we were discussing, and he brought up this whole idea of win conditions and basically the notion that the rules of the game actually dictate people's behavior because a savvy competitor, for example, is going to eventually change and tailor their behavior to optimize under the given rule set that they're playing under. And this is something that you brought up, if I understand correctly. You wanted to dig a bit deeper into what do people really value in Mm jujitsu? And ultimately, are they valuing the right things? And how do the rule sets that we train and compete under alter what we value and how we behave in those situations. So mm-hmm. with that said, if I understood correctly, Robert, I'd love to give you the floor here and you can maybe kick this off and we can get going. Well, so I want to start off by saying, I think it's, oh, we always have to be very careful when we talk about like what someone should value. Like I'm not here to tell people what they should be taking from jujitsu. Okay. Like there's a lot of things that you can take from jujitsu and I don't think any of them are wrong per se. If your only goal in jujitsu is to learn how to beat the shit out of people on the mat, like that's not wrong. You know what I mean? Like if somebody comes into the academy and they say, Oh, that's why I'm, I want to learn jujitsu. That's not wrong. That's just, I think, not actually why most people do it. Okay. Like maybe that's what gets them in the door initially, but I think something else, I think something else that I want to talk about, like at length, hooks people and keeps them doing this. Okay. I always want to like preface what I'm going to say with like, I don't want to pass judgment on like other reasons for doing this. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that what people usually find that hooks them in jujitsu is the same thing. It's the same general concept that winds up hooking people in a part of it is at least what hooks people in a game like ping pong or tennis. Okay. There's, there's another part to it. That's pretty different. I think than ping pong or tennis, but there's one part that's very, very similar to it, which is this idea of like people being engaged in something. Okay. And that's a physical thing and a mental thing from a physical component engagement is i think one of the most important concepts you can ever understand when you start when you start looking at 
grappling roles and grappling competitions because it factors so heavily into the dynamic of like how rule sets shape the sport. This is like a one of the things that makes grappling such a difficult thing to even make a sport centered around because unlike tennis or ping pong, grappling engagement is oftentimes much more of a choice than something that's required like by the mechanics of the sport, right? So for instance, if we imagine two ping pong players, how could you possibly be playing ping pong and not engaging, right? Like the ball will, if you stop engaging, you're going to lose because the ball is going to hit on your side of the, the table and you don't whack it back. That's it. The, you know what I mean? You, you, you naturally lose. However, in grappling, I mean, like there's so many examples. I think you could even make an argument that it happens more frequently that rule sets encourage disengagement rather than engagement where guys are, are going after each other. Okay. So basically I think like for me, like when I'm rolling in the gym, I feel like there's a sense in which like uh, the greater the extent to which I'm consistently engaging, the more I feel focused on what I'm doing. And a lot of, I think, value is drawn from that. So like if you're rolling and you're rolling constantly with the intent to not get tapped or maybe even just like dominate every roll, that'll take you to a point, but only so far, right? And ultimately, I think that can get really boring, Whereas if you are constantly looking to engage in different positions, different situations, you have a more exploratory mindset. The extent to which you're capable of being present and focused on what you're doing, it has a much wider range. When people are rolling in the academy, it's very different based on the academy you're at, but I'll just speak towards, like I can speak to Henzo's. In Henzo's, people don't tend to roll always with like a this might surprise people, but with like a air quote competition mindset. And what I mean by that is you'll score a lot of like sweeps at Henzo's that people will just give you because like they're, they'll fall back for a leg lock or they, they don't want you to attack their legs. So they'll fall back or they just want to play guard that day or something, right? Like I've never really trained at like a, a very heavy IBJJF focused school, like a, like a, one of the real powerhouse academies of like that style. But I would imagine it's not really like that there. They're sort of like much more insistent on not giving up sweeps and such. So like at Henzo's, we, we sort of developed this style of like sort of like flowing engagement. And like certain people that are focused on like points tournaments have definitely changed this. But like you can – if you go back before before the squad started like winning ADCC and such, you can kind of see this, right? Like like Gary used to like give up position all the time to go back for, for submissions and such. And like – we were training or in a large sense still are training more so with this mindset of like engagement in a variety of positions without having too much focus on dominating the role per se. And like, there's like an exploratory nature to that. Am I, am I making any sense or is this just like, <laughs> absolutely. This is um something that I've heard Tonin talk about multiple times. And uh, even Oliver, you know, I said, I'm like, how is it, how is it rolling with Gary? And he's like, to be honest, I mean, the guy and he's he doesn't hide the fact that he taps a lot in training. And mm -hmm. a lot of it is because I think he's trying to he goes into training, not necessarily to win the roles, but like you say, to learn. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, something we talk about when it comes to training in the gym. Uh, you know, the difference between training for competition versus training for learning. And if you're training for an IBJJF competition, 
because the game revolves so much around positional dominance, you know, it's it's not uncommon to go to a school that has an IBJJF mindset or the, you know, IBJJF rules are their main mind, uh, their main win conditions where they're going to go hard pretty much every role, especially in the mm-hmm. gi. Guys tend to fight tooth and nail for every inch, you know, not get swept, not get past, um, not give up bad positions because under those rule sets, if you do that, it could mean the end of the match. Yeah. Like, literally that could, if you get your guard passed in the IBJJF at the highest level, I can't remember what the stats are, but it's 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 something like over 80 or 90 percent that you're probably going to lose that match if you get your guard mm. passed at the black belt level. And it's just because the margin for error, you know, is so low and uh, or so small. And at that point, it becomes more of a fight against the clock. Right. Because, you know, this your opponent is in such a dominant position, whereas if you're training for, you know, something like a sub only competition or you're just trying to learn and gather information you know, in a variety of different positions, it makes sense to not fight tooth and nail. And I I find that this has an interesting effect, you know, when you're not, Mm -hmm. when your brain isn't totally focused on winning every single, you know, the term I've heard you used and we've used it before as well as rallying. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're rallying back and forth, you know, when you're, when you're focused hundred percent on not losing that rally, your brain is, is very engaged and very much like, I don't want to say stressed, but, but it is stressed, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's high intensity. Whereas if you're just kind of flowing, allowing yourself to go into different positions and allowing yourself to get swept. And, and so you can notice transitions. I find it's a lot more relaxed. You're able to sort of take a step back and almost absorb more information just because the environment is less stressful. It becomes less about being defeated and more about gathering the information and sort of seeing where the transitions lie, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Matt, this reminds me of what we talked about earlier where we were going on about cognitive load and how, you know, if you are in a, an uber stressful environment, it can actually impede your ability to learn. And I think that's one of the risks with going into the gym planning to tap everyone every single time is it kind of forces you into the situation where you're afraid to experiment, you're afraid to try new things, you're afraid to look bad, and that's ultimately going to prevent you from really expanding your game and expanding your mind. And Robert, to your earlier point, I think you have a great example that, you know, there is really no right answer as to why people should train jujitsu. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned that some people come in and they do it because they want to be world champions. And that's true. But I think that the majority of people, you know, they come in for a variety of reasons, not nearly that competitive. They want to just learn how to defend themselves, for example. And I Mm -hmm. don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but that will lead to a very different mindset and style of training. Mm -hmm. We had Preet Mikkelsen on the podcast and he was talking about his defensive strategies. And this is one of the things he brought up, which is that like, look, for a lot of people who are training they don't necessarily want to go in there and smash and destroy highly competitive people in their own weight class. You know, they might want to learn to defend themselves in a realistic situation against a bigger aggressor. And that's going to change the win conditions, right? That's going to change what you're trying to achieve. And again, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer, but yeah, depending on your reasons for training, that's going to dramatically change the way that you train and actually have uh, like an outcome in terms of the strategies and the tactics that you use. Right. Yeah. So I want to 
sort of uh, center this this conversation now around like this this question of that I think a lot of people might assume is has a, an obvious answer, but I I really actually don't think it has an obvious answer. Um, the question is like, how can we determine who is the best grappler in the world? And like the difficulty with that question is that there's no clearly defined metric by which we can measure what that means, right? Because like grappling can be done in many different contexts. Grappling, like I was talking about, like the kind of grappling you'll see at the Henzo Gracie Academy, the way in which people roll with each other, the kind of grappling you'll see maybe in an IBJJF centric school, the kind of grappling you'll see in an MMA fight, for instance, the way in which we would want to evaluate the skill in each of these domains is like, it's going to be different. And so what I think people oftentimes don't realize is that rule sets always implicitly encourage certain behaviors over others. And sometimes when rule sets are designed, like the sort of behaviors that wind up being encouraged are not what was anticipated and not, I think, what what most people I think are interested in encouraging with a grappling rule set. So like, for instance, let's talk about two pretty different examples. So you got ADCC and EBI. Very, very different, obviously. If you look at the early days of both of these events, they don't really look that different, to be honest. Like people are kind of just going out there and just grappling. I think, honestly, in the way you would see in an academy setting, people are just kind of just going after each other. They're not really thinking too much about the rule set. Now, there is, you always saw in EBI a little bit more like willingness, obviously, to give up sweeps and stuff. But if you watch the early EBIs, some guys would fight like tooth and nail to not give up sweeps, which there really is no purpose in that rule set to doing that. But people were just doing that because like, you know, maybe they trained in like an IBJJF focused school. Anyway, regardless, as the events went on, you see like this sharp divergence between the behavior of the athletes in each of the rule set. So like, for instance, in EBI, you started to see that the optimal strategy for many people was to just stall and try to get to overtime. And that is, I think, I think where we're at with EBI rules right now. Yep. If we take two athletes and we uh, have them engage with each other in EBI, if I'm a, if I'm the worst athlete, like if I'm the one who has less skill, I have no reason to engage. There's no reason. I should just try to get the overtime. <laughs> so true. And you see that so much now. Mm-hmm. And guys get just like fantastic on the back and in the uh, spider web. I mean, let's be honest. The spider web position is you probably see it like 15% of the time. And then the mm-hmm. other 85% of the time you see people favor the back position for, I think, obvious reasons. But you're absolutely right. And uh, especially, you know, you get these guys that, you know, you're going against like a like an Eddie Cummings or whatever. It's like you don't want that guy to entangle your leg at all. So it makes mm-hmm. sense for you to just kind of keep your distance and kind of just stall out. And it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting, you know, and, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent here. I know you're in the middle of a point, but you know, you'll watch fight to wins and you see guys that are just, they're clearly not considering the win conditions. Like they're going for wrestling for like eight minutes and then the last yeah. minute and a half or whatever, you'll see them actually take it to the ground. And that's when they turn it on, on the ground. It's like, what were you doing the first eight minutes? Like there's, <laughs> there's no point in wrestling under these rules i'm training for a 10 minute sub only match right now and it's like i I don't want to give it away a lot of strategy but let's just say like takedowns Mm -hmm. don't really do anything you know like yeah it could be morally defeating and you could impose your will but that's not really a winning strategy under those rules in fact it's a great way to eat up time Mm -hmm. right so and and you'll see you'll see guys in the gi doing fight to win 
And then they're wrapping up like lapel guards and stuff. It's like, you know, I, I, there's not many submissions from worm guard. There's the worm bar and then there's, you know, you can take the back. So it's mm-hmm. like really what we're doing is kind of eating up a lot of time. And if finishing and getting sub attempts is your goal, this is not, in my opinion, the smartest way to approach a match like that. Uh, yeah, well, I completely agree. But I mean, that mainly just, I mean, you see that in like, most jiu-jitsu tournaments period like most jiu-jitsu athletes don't in like at like lower level tournaments they're not really thinking too much about like the rule set which is why i was so like when i was getting at before with like the early history of adcc and ebi right like guys weren't gaming it too much just yet but uh anyway just to uh continue with what i was saying that what you were saying is totally on you know uh, on topic by the way obviously of course it's very relevant so in ebi you you see an increasing tendency towards a certain type of disengagement and if you want to see in my opinion a perfect example of the worst kind of disengagement encouraged by the ebi rule set it's a match that i wound up winning but i'm honestly when i think about it i'm kind of ashamed of the match because i think i grappled in a, a borderline i would say cowardly way and i can explain what i mean by that if you guys are interested but like <laughs> cowardly way <laughs> yeah yeah i want to hear this yes okay so if you watch my last finisher's sub only super fight it was against this guy named uh, basically originally i had a match scheduled against the head of 10th planet new york city a uh, guy named ray de leon who has a, a good name and it was a match that i was very interested in you know i i thought it would be a very good match stylistically and in terms of the fact that we're at similar places in our career in terms of I think like where we are at in terms of like there's no rankings in sub only but like kind of where you could imagine us in the pecking order so to speak okay but he got hurt apparently like two weeks before or something and they were looking for a replacement and they wound up finding this guy uh, named Ricky Weatherell who is pretty good he's dangerous in some areas usually pretty aggressive but he has no name. Like, no one knows who he is. I knew who he was because I'd, I'd seen him compete before, but he doesn't really have much of a name, whereas Ray DeLeon definitely has a name. So if I go out there and I have, like, I'm not, like, a big name or anything, but I have a modest following. If I go out there and, let's say, Ray DeLeon taps me out, I mean, that sucks, but, like, he still has a name. But then if I get tapped by Ricky Weatherell, nobody really knows who he is. And I, like, when I got to the venue that day, like, everybody was gassing me up. Everybody was like, Rob, you're going to fuck this guy up in one minute. It's going to be kind like of under- a lose-lose situation almost. I, well, I wouldn't say lose-lose because I could still have a good performance and, and wind up winning. And that's not, that doesn't hurt me whatsoever, right? And honestly, even if I lost, I don't really even think it affects me that much. I don't think people really give a shit that much about, like, losses in grappling. They care more about wins, which is, I think, fortunate. Um, like, one big win erases, like, a hundred bad losses in grappling. Regardless, I got really in my own head about, like, okay, I got to make sure I, I solidify the win here, you know, at all costs. And what, what <laughs> he thought the same thing. And so what wound up happening was the two of us went out there and we double guard pulled. And I was thinking to myself, okay, Ricky's best game is leg locks. I'm not coming on top of him. And he thought to himself, um, Rob's best game is leg locks. I'm not coming on top of him. And I also – see, like, his strategy made less sense than mine because, like, I knew – that if we went to OT, I was most likely going to win because I have a pretty good back control and I've never seen him really display strong back control skills. Now, he could have been amazing at it and been hiding it, but like I was pretty confident that if I went to OT, I was going to win. So what wound up happening was we just sort of like, I got him in cross Ashi once, but he got out. You know, he's got good defense and we both really didn't engage that much. And then it went to OT. And as I predicted, I won pretty easily. And it's like, if you told me, uh, if you don't win this match, 
you will die. Like what I did was I think the smartest thing, right? I pursued the highest percentage path to ensuring the victory at all costs. But the question is, I felt like, I mean, I felt like shit after that match. And I think I felt like shit. I also felt like I would say guilty because the question is, was I grappling in a way which is in the spirit of why I do jujitsu and why I think a lot of people do jujitsu? And I think the answer to that question is no. So what happened in that situation was I caved to the pressure of victory at all costs. And I grappled in a way which was encouraged by the rule set. There was no reason for me not to grapple like that. I did exactly what I think I should have done if winning was the most important thing. He had no chance at like just sitting down the way he was sitting down. He really didn't have any chance of getting me with anything. He didn't really do much in the match in terms of attacking me. He just kept scooting his hips back. And he didn't really have any chance at beating me in OT either. So from my perspective, what should I, in my opinion, I had two good options if I wanted to grapple in the spirit of why I do jujitsu. I do jujitsu because I am interested in exploring the depth to which grappling skill can be developed. And I think that a lot of people, without maybe realizing it, that's actually why they're doing this. And I'll talk about that more in a second. But like basically what I think I should have done, I should have, and I've done this in subsequent matches, given him a leg entanglement, defended, countered, and, and tried to catch him. Or I should have come on top and tried to pass. Both of those are examples of uh, forcing engagement. It's much easier to force engagement if you're willing to concede positions or come on top and you know, go towards the guy, right? Like sitting on my butt, I kind of need him to come towards me for that to work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what you're talking about here where you're talking about how there's a reason why you do this. Mm-hmm. There's like a, almost like a core philosophy behind jujitsu. But in the moment, in any given particular match, given the rules, sometimes the priority drifts and focuses mm-hmm. on those rules. And you you might wind up actually drifting away from your core philosophy. There's a, a really interesting concept in business called Goodhart's Law. And what it says is that any measure that you want to use as a target, it ceases to become a good measure. So mm-hmm. if you've got like a metric that you're using as like, okay, this is the way I, I want to define success. I want to measure my team's success. Then mm-hmm. people will inherently start trying to gain that metric to the point where it's no longer really a useful metric anymore. Like a common example is if you have a sales team and you're telling your sales team, your number one goal is to make sales. Like no matter what, we're going to judge your performance based on how much revenue you bring in. Well, mm-hmm. your sales team is going to start doing stupid shit where they're going to basically be bringing on bad deals that might actually wind up losing the company money because they aren't told like, okay, you have to worry about how much effort is required to support the sale. They're given just one piece of data to focus on. They're told focus on sales and revenue, and that can result in them making stupid decisions elsewhere over the long term. So it's one of those funny principles, Goodhart's Law, about how when you try to create a rule set or a series of win conditions to optimize Mm -hmm. for good behavior and for the result you want, sometimes it can actually guide people off of the path. I mean, a great example, and one that you guys talked about earlier was EBI. EBI, the whole rule set was specifically designed to encourage 
action-based, submission-based grappling. Like the whole idea is, you know, going for the sub is super important. And so we're going to create this rule set that optimizes for that. But to your point, Robert, like sometimes Mm -hmm. the nature of this rule set they've created can actually achieve the opposite effect because people have learned how to gain the system to get into situations where they can basically get an easier win than they otherwise would have to. And that can actually result in disengagement, which probably was not what was expected when that rule set was created in the first place right yeah and and i don't i don't think it's a cowardly thing to win at all costs um i do understand that if i'm not mistaken you probably wish that you had you know sort of imposed your game on him and i don't i don't think being careless is what you wanted to do but like maybe take some more risks to to force to force reactions from him rather than just playing Uh. more safe and sitting uh on your butt right is that sort of what you're getting at yeah, I mean, I'm calling it, well, I mean, like, I'm talking about one of my own matches. I would never call someone else, like, a coward for doing what I did, because, like, yeah. that's, like, I would never, I've said this many times, I'll never, ever begrudge a competitor for doing what they have to do within the rule set to mm-hmm. get a victory, because that's, you know what I mean? It's not the athlete's um job to, to like, fix a rule set, so to speak. I would say it was because, like, it was basically born out of fear. Mm. It was fear of looking bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was yeah. fear of looking bad. So, like, I was, like, I, it was like an ego protection way to grapple. Yeah. But, like. It wasn't the way Helio intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe not. Uh, well, I think maybe Helio was all about, like, survival, right? So, maybe I did do the right thing then. Um, yeah, I got, I got a question for you because you had mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, your two main like aside from what you did, two options you could have done. One was kind of come up on top and and try mm-hmm. passing or using passing to enter the legs, which I think is a fantastic strategy. Um, the second option was sort of give him a leg entanglement to get him closer to you. And then from there, you could look to counter and catch, right? Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you because I, I watched a lot of your videos, very technical, very much use a lot of leg locks in your competitions. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I, I like to do. I, I probably don't get it as much as I'd like to, but it's definitely something I like to do. How do you feel about, you know, if you're in a double sit- seated position against someone, what about like barum bolos and entering leg locks from the crab or from an inverted position? Because I found a mm-hmm. lot of positions when you're upside down, you can enter into leg entanglements and cross ashes and things like that. Yeah, it's definitely something I've explored. Um, one of my training partners, he's one of my main training partners. We've spent a lot of time thinking about this topic. I'm of the general belief that a double seated situation in Nogi, it's just too easy to scoot your hips back. Like nothing really tends to happen. Like there are things we can explore and try to do, but like Nogi Barambolos from a double seated situation almost never work. Like if you want to talk about low and high percentage it's one of the lowest percentage things i can imagine and the reason i say that is because like so when we talk about low and high percentage i think people oftentimes think more so in terms of like niche or popular like just because you don't see something happen very much doesn't mean it's low percentage right like i would consider the Tariko plata a fairly high percentage submission but you don't yeah. see it very much so that means it's niche but something that's low percentage is something that you see attempted many, many times and which barely ever works. I would honestly struggle to give you an example of something like that actually working. Like one of the, the mm-hmm. like the Nogi Barambolo or the Nogi Barambolo into the legs or something from a double seated situation. I think Nogi Barambolos 
absolutely work, but not in a double seated situation. Whereas I could give you like off the top of my head, I can think of like numerous examples of times that people have spent entire matches trying to do it and it doesn't work. So it's like, it's like one of those things that this is a whole other topic unto itself, but it's one of those things that I think people, they try to copy and paste gi grappling into no gi and it, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. You know what I mean? I think I think that's one of the main things that was happening when I started jujitsu over 10 years ago, because mm-hmm. I've always done no gi and gi together. Um, I know some people favor one or the other. And when I started, that's what I saw was like, OK, we're doing no gi jujitsu now. You're basically combining some wrestling with how you would do jujitsu without the gi, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or, or with the gi, pardon me. So you'd see a lot more like, OK, I'm going to play Delaheva off my back. And I'm not saying that doesn't work, but then you negate, you know, the the seated guard, you negate your hand fighting phase, which is super important. And it's just, I, I think, kind of a waste of a layer of guard. Uh, and to your point, I do I do agree Barambolo in Nogi's in a Nogi situation is very much less percentage. But I think it also depends I think it also depends what your objective is with the Barambolo. You know, I, I used to do tons of Barambolos, big fan of them. And I think, yes, if your goal is to take the back with the Barambola without the gi, good luck. It's going to be very mm-hmm. difficult. It's not impossible, but against like a really good guy, it's going to be very difficult to do that. But to do it to in, to create a reaction and to create some, some movement from your opponent and possibly invert into something, I think is more likely. But definitely without the grips, you know, it's it is difficult. I, mm-hmm. My whole thing is just, you know, if if you don't want to come up on top because maybe the guy's got great entries from the bottom and, you know, you every time you engage with him and he is just scooting his hips back, I tend to think that, you know, inverting and sort of in a way that's kind of what you were suggesting, which is kind of offering him something, offering him a leg to grab onto and then from there seeing if you can close the distance. Yeah, I mean, I think that the highest percentage way to use the Barambolo from a double-seated situation in Nogi is to use it to connect into leg drags and body lock type passes. Absolutely. Yeah, but that fundamentally brings it back to the point of like coming on top is one of the things I should have done, right? Like I don't, I'm not a Barambolo player. Like I, I know how to do them, but I don't use them like really literally at all. I don't think I've ever done one <laughs> in training and definitely not in competition. Mm-hmm. But I don't do them much anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Throughout my purple and brown belt days, I did. I watched Meow Brothers and Mendez Bros. I'm like, I need to learn how to do that. Right. But then yeah. like now I'm black belt and I'm like, uh, you know, I, I just want to like. <laughs> Matt, I love how you literally made the instructional on Barambolos, but now ah, I don't do those. <laughs> well, it's just like at the highest levels to make that work. Like I can make it work in the gym very often, mm-hmm. but like if I'm going against like a high level black belt and it's IBJJF, you know, and I do a Barambolo and then he controls my leg and I'm stuck upside down. It's it's just not an ideal position to be in. And I've realized like there are higher percentage strategies in competition that I think are of more value, but I definitely invert into legs. I think that that is something that we don't see a whole lot of. And I think as long as your goal is not really to like get the back fully, like if that's, if we we discussed, if that's your objective, that's very difficult thing to do without the gi, but you can definitely use it to create scrambles, create, you know, at least create some kind of a reaction from your opponent. Yeah. But I mean, just to, just to finish off what I was saying about that is like, I just think though that it still requires like the reaction that you're usually going to get, the only two ways in a double-seated situation in no-gi to really, like, get engagement is to either have one of the guys come on top or have one of the guys, 
either give up an entanglement or like really not do a good job of defending their legs. Because like if I'm, if I'm seated and you're seated, if you want to entangle one of my legs, that's actually really, really hard to do. It's really easy to like keep using your hands and your secondary leg to, to push and scoot your hips back constantly. Mm -hmm. So like disengagement is much easier in that situation. Anyway, so to, to continue with the, uh, like the point that I was getting about like grappling like a, a coward, like I did. <laughs> okay. So basically I think of like, what it is that I want, you kind of were asking about this earlier, like this idea of having like a core philosophy behind like why you're doing jujitsu or grappling. And it's for me, I think more so than anything else, there is a value that comes from grappling in a way that is focused more on exploring the depths to which skill can be developed rather than focusing on winning. And let me try to explain what I mean by that because that sounds like really hippy-dippy bullshit. Basically, when I focus in jiu-jitsu upon the, the skills themselves and refining those skills, it becomes more about the process of development than it becomes about satisfying any external win conditions. It sounds almost like you're talking about flow state. Yeah, I, I, I've read, uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce that Czech guy's name, Mihaly, Chikmet Mihaly or whatever, but like I- I am not going to make the mistake of attempting. <laughs> well, like, it's a great book. Uh, I read it years ago, uh, back when I was an undergraduate in philosophy, and the concept of flow uh, has always been really interesting to me. I would say that my outlook on this topic is m uh, more influenced, however, by, there's a, a Chinese philosopher named, probably pronouncing this wrong, Zhuangzhou. So Zhuangzhou was a Taoist philosopher, and there's a specific passage where he he wrote about this cook that he calls Cook Ding, and Cook Ding is like cutting up an ox, and this this lord, this Chinese lord, is like remarking upon the magnificent skill that Cook Ding demonstrates, and Cook Ding says, paraphrasing, but he talks about he says, what I am interested in is the way which goes beyond skill. And I've always thought that was very interesting. And I think that in jujitsu, so often what happens is we come to the sport, maybe because we want to learn how to fight. But then what winds up happening is we become addicted to this process of exploring the lengths to which we can take skill. And it becomes, in a sense, a way. So the Chinese term Tao implies a sort of way of being or a way of life. It's like, in a sense, a path. And it's something that has to be experienced to be understood. Like a way cannot be, I can't put it into words for you. You have to go through the process of having experienced it yourself. And when you are in the middle of a role and you find yourself engrossed in the moment, there's a sense in which that is an expression of what Cook Ding is talking about when he says, uh, that he's interested in the way rather than skill. So skill is a path, we can say, to arriving at a way. It's, it's, we take what is on the surface level conscious and through a process of skill development, render that subconscious and then you become engrossed in the moment. Like it's, it's flow state, right? Basically is what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, something I've always said about jujitsu is that it's it's a form of mindfulness training at the end of the day, mm-hmm. right? You mentioned this exactly, how when you are grappling, you're in the moment in a way that you often aren't during the rest of your life. You know, mm-hmm. you're, It's very hard when you're grappling with someone to be worried about what's going to happen at work tomorrow or that fight, that, that argument you just had at home, right? It's It forces you into the present moment. It's kind of like forced meditation. <laughs> and right. I think that that's something that really we don't talk about a lot in terms of the benefits of jujitsu. I mean, jujitsu, we've always looked at it as this borderline scientific art. And that's one of the, the ways that it gets advertised, right? Is, oh, it doesn't have all of that, that, you know, that fancy fluffy stuff that traditional martial arts have. But the reality is there is something to that, right? To the traditional martial arts and the philosophies that they bring. And I've always felt that <laughs> the best parts of jujitsu are actually the parts that aren't really the jujitsu, right? It's the other stuff that you get out of it. Jujitsu right. is just kind of a, a vehicle for getting there, for learning how to how to learn, for example, it's for learning how to experience the present moment and the joy of mastery. And that's something that, mm-hmm. again, to your point, maybe people don't get into jujitsu because that's what they want out of it. But after you've been doing it for years and years and years, and you're no longer stuck in the details and you can kind of see the big picture, you really do begin to understand how powerful jujitsu is as a a tool for achieving flow, for optimizing your learning, for learning discipline, for just kind of like learning how to be mindful, that kind of stuff that in jujitsu we often make fun of the traditional martial artists for. At the end of the day, I would guess that a lot of black belts and above, they come in and say that that's one of the main reasons they keep training. Right, yeah. It's interesting how you're talking about the way, right? And jujitsu is the gentle way. When you're discussing sort of skills and how deep you can go into skills versus just sort of living in the moment and things that go farther than skill, that's that's interesting you say that. It's making me think a lot about when I first started my journey. Like, for example, I was I was a chef previously and uh, mm-hmm. I used to smoke cigarettes and like, you know, experimented with lots of drugs and things. I was getting into some bad, you know, partying scenes and stuff. And then I found jujitsu and like without even thinking about it, after my first few practices, I was just like, holy shit, like part of me wants to be better. Part of me wants to give up the cigarettes that I've been smoking because, because I have an urge to do better. Like I have an urge to not get tired. Uh, I don't want anyone to be able to dominate me because I'm tired and I don't want to, Mm -hmm. I don't want my lungs to hold me back from possibly gaining a a, a higher skill level. And, you know, when you reach, when you do jujitsu for, you know, whatever, some people five years, some people 10 years, some people never reach it, but after a while it becomes less about thinking about what you're doing, but more just like you live it. Like you go on the Mm -hmm. mats and you don't really need to think too much. It's almost automatic at that point. And I'm not sure if that's, you know, flow state or, or if that means the way or whatever. But to me, that is kind of like the level that I've somewhat reached when I'm training. And it's, it's no longer about thinking or about, you know, which skills apply in these situations, but more just like, okay, I'm here, I'm present. I don't have to think it's almost a state of it's a it's like I'm somewhere else. Yeah. And it's, it becomes a state of meditation almost. Well, I think there are a lot of different things there that I wasn't really uh, necessarily getting at. Like, <laughs> like, I don't think 
Um, I'm not talking about like the way in which jiu-jitsu can motivate you to like improve your life generally speaking. Like I don't – so for instance, if somebody takes up jiu-jitsu and then they stop smoking, like like, like you were saying happened with, with you because you want to have better mat performance. That is I think a great benefit we can say of jiu-jitsu but it's, it's not really what I'm – getting at. And I, and I also, I don't think that there's a sense in which we can ever describe what we're doing as being completely shut off from deliberate thought. Like there's always this interaction between like flow state and we, what we can call maybe more like scientific deliberate thinking. Like we can never really shut that off completely because if you do, then you, I think are stagnating. Like skill is born out of an engagement between research and attempts to manifest that research on the mat and then like flow state or like an experience of like the way as we're talking about it here comes when the results of that like previously engaged in process of like research and then experimentation bears fruition right like it and then it it becomes something like that you don't think about anymore but there's always you always have to actively engage in the process of like questioning what you're doing. Like it never comes up. People can do this and there's nothing wrong with this, but I personally would never, I will never come to a point in jujitsu where when I step on the mat, I'm not constantly questioning what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, which is, um, I think really important to my process. So this motivation for pursuing grappling that I'm, I'm trying to get at uh, as being like the pursuit of flow states, I want to ask to what extent do the rule sets that we compete in encourage that? And to what extent does it make sense to say that people who win certain tournaments are the best in the world? I don't like, this is kind of what I was getting at before when I was saying it's dicey to even ask what makes someone the best in the world at grappling. Cause it's not one specific thing, right? The person who's the best in the world, we can say at, at EBI or the person who's the best in the world at ADCC, these it could be the same person, but oftentimes I think like if we took, let's say a thousand people and you allowed them to practice ADCC uh, rules for like 50 years, like a whole community to engage in ADCC rules for 50 years. And then on a separate continent, you allow people to engage in isolation in EBI rules for 50 years. I really don't think one person would be able to go into both competitive communities and like win all their tournaments. Like this, the meta would be so highly specialized. I think that would be really difficult. It's possible, but it would be really difficult. I think the only reason you see it now sometimes is that the meta hasn't like gone through enough iterations like it's this is still a really young sport so people can get away with taking skill sets from one discipline and or like competitive arena and like just like transporting it to another when you look at like how some grapplers compete there is a sense in which what they're doing that we find valuable is in spite of the rule set rather than because of it and i think a really good example of this is marcelo garcia Okay, like a lot, a lot of people don't know this, but Marcelo Garcia actually never won the trials. In fact, he lost in the finals. In 2003 in Sao Paulo, he pulled guard in the finals and he gave up a negative and the other guy wound up winning as a result. I've never seen the match. I don't know if there's a video on it out there, but apparently the guy just stalled. That's what Marcelo claims, at least in his ex-guard book. But then later, Marcelo wound up getting invited because of Dennis Hallman, who's an American grappler, uh, wound up not showing up 
And then Marcelo got an invite. He, the event happened to be in Sao Paulo where Marcelo was from. And so they said, well, okay, let's ask the guy who got second place in this weight class at the trials, like just invite that guy. And then Marcelo went. And as you know, most of us know, he had like an amazing performance and he wound up submitting everyone except Henzo Gracie. If you look at Marcelo's career, he's never grappled in a way that's like, when you think of like the, prototypical ADCC rules grappler, right? Like I'll give you an example who I think we can say is like the most ADCC rules grappler ever, like Orlando Sanchez, right? Orlando Sanchez won his gold, if I'm not mistaken, without scoring a point or submission. He just won every match by the other guy pulling guard uh, and eating a negative. So the question is, when we look at Marcelo's career and we look at what we find valuable about it, right? It's the wins, but it's more than just the wins. It's how he did it. And it's not, I think many people would be tempted to say, oh, it's the submissions, right? No, it's not the submissions. It's the spirit in which he grappled, which was a spirit of engagement, which is a spirit of exploration and experimentation and trying to see how far one can take one's skills in in an honest way, where you're not trying to just win at all costs. Marcelo never tried to win at all costs. Do you know what I mean? Like he would pull Absolutely. guard. He would pull guard in ADCC finals. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that when people talk about rule sets, then it's not often that people critically analyze, does this rule set do what we want it to? I mean, it's, it's interesting, this thing you brought up earlier about Goodhart's law, where I wrote that down because I want to read about that later. <laughs> Maybe we can't come up with a rule set that'll really effectively encourage grapplers to to behave in ways that is congruent with this sort of spirit of experimentation and exploration and and you know what we can say is like flow state, right? But I think that we can definitely improve the extent to which it does. Now, I mean, there's two elements to this in terms of like how we might want to handle this. If you take what I'm saying seriously and you think that I'm making some sense, there's two ways you can take, uh, you can go with it. You can say, well, all right, so then we got to fix the rule set. That's sort of like the revolutionary approach. Or you can just say, well, it's, <laughs> it's never going to happen, which I think it, I do think it isn't going to happen. I, I don't think the rule sets are going to get changed the way I think that they should or that would be good if they would, in my opinion. A second approach is to just train how you want. And then recognize that competition for what it is, is a different thing. I want to train in a way that is in the spirit of how someone like Marcelo grappled. Okay. And go out there to compete largely with that mindset. But I think if you're going to do that, you have to recognize sometimes, unless you're just so much fucking better than everyone, it doesn't matter, which is what I think someone like Gordon does. He's because he's just so much goddamn better than everyone, it doesn't matter. He just goes out there and he's able to just get the job done against anyone. I mean, that obviously should be our goal. But recognize that sometimes you may fall short to someone who is more effectively gaming the rule set. Mm. And it's not, it's, they're not doing anything wrong. And in a sense, neither are you, you know, and it's, that's fine. If that happens, that happens, but I'm not going to compromise on my principle. I don't, since that match, I haven't in any other matches, I think, compromised on my principles as a grappler, which is to say grappled in, I think, a cowardly way. I've had since that match 42 matches. And I think out of all of the, in all of them, I've grappled in a way that I'm even, <laughs> I lost three of them, but like 
I grapple in a way that I was largely proud of. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not happy that I lost, but I'm not ashamed of it in the same way because I gra- I went out there and I tried to grapple in the spirit of what I think I see jujitsu as being about. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to talk about like one other thing briefly on this, this topic. And this is a whole nother topic, which we could get into if you're interested is ultimately the reason why I prefer pursuing grappling in this exploratory fashion is that I think there's a lot more depth to it in terms of the value it can have in your life or the value it can bring to your life, I'll say. So like, let's say that like you, if, and I, I give people this story to try to get across what I mean by that. Let's say I told you, you could win a world champ. Let's say you say your goal is to win a world championship because you want to be the best. Okay. All right. Good. Now, let's say I told you, you could win the trials and then ADCC worlds, but every single match, as soon as you walked out there, you slapped hands with the guy, you tied up with him, and then the guy slipped and like <laughs> broke his neck or something. And like, that's how you won every match, right? Now- Sounds would- pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, would you be a world champion? It's like, yeah, you would technically, right? But it's like, would you feel satisfied with what had just happened? I know that I, I mean, <laughs> I definitely wouldn't. I've won matches where I felt cheated by how easy it was to win where i was like <sighs> like i went out there and then the guy just does something completely asinine and gives me something and and i took it which is what i think you should do but it's like mm, but i don't really feel like what i did was really pushing the envelope for me i wasn't moving in any new and interesting directions i didn't grow in any way as a grappler through this experience and then I've subsequently, and I can point to specific matches where I've done this. I've subsequently, I've gone out there and because I'm more interested in pushing the envelope with my skills and, and where that can take me, I've seen opportunities, not taken them and then moved to something else. And then eventually got the guy with something different. Just, just because I, it's not just about winning to me. I make no mistake. Winning matters. I want to win. I'm a competitive person in a certain sense, but like, the win at all costs is not what I think is valuable because if it was, then that story I just gave about this guy breaking his neck, all these people breaking their necks and that's how you win. If the win was all that mattered, that would be, everyone would just say, ah, yes, that's great. I want that to happen. And <laughs> maybe you, you would like that. To happen. Yeah. Uh, but like, no, I hear you. And I'm sure, dude, make no mistake. If someone told me that I could win ADCC in some like corny ass way, Probably do, probably do it just because the, uh, the way it would affect my life professionally. It would, it would help me greatly in that regard. But like from a personal level, like as a grappler, I want to go out there and I want to, it's not about submitting everyone. I want to engage with everyone. Mm. I want to go out there. I can't control what they do, but I can control what I do. I want to be consistently engaging and hopefully they do the same. And then we have this experience of two guys going after each other and out of that emerges beautiful grappling, which which is a manifestation of the way or something that pushes us to experience flow state, which we grow from. And so I think that that's ultimately what's much more valuable about grappling. You know what I mean? Like the way it can push you to do that sort of a thing as a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, anyone, anyone who watches you compete knows that you're very aggressive. Uh, Mm -hmm. Usually you play on the bottom and you have that game where you engage the grips and you try and create that pressure from the bottom. So I, I don't think I've ever seen you mm-hmm. fight in that way. And maybe it's because you had that experience and now 
you know, you're like, well, that that was something that you, you know, you can describe it as cowardly or whatever, or not how <laughs> you would normally like to represent yourself. But mm-hmm. it was important in your development because yeah. you can look back to that example and be like, well, that is I know for sure that is not how I want to compete. So moving forward, you actually did improve from it. Because you know what you don't want to do. Mm. And uh, I really like the example you used about Marcelo. That's a guy who, you know, if you watch his 2000s run, he's just always attacking. He'll fight mm. anyone, you know, all did the absolutes and everything, fought much bigger guys. And he did lose a few times, but he always went out, you know, swinging. He lived and died by the sword. I don't think I've ever seen a match or even a role in the gym where Marcelo is stalling or where he's he's just trying to sit back on his heels and just win. The guy mm-hmm. always tries to finish you and he's a beast from all positions. So like when you're talking about inspirations and who you can aspire to be and how you want to train or compete, I think that is Marcelo is a very appropriate example. Yeah. My favorite grappler ever actually is Cobrinha. Might surprise people because I don't grapple at all like him, but <laughs> or uh, in the in the gi, right? You do you train in the gi, Robert? No, I haven't worn a gi in I think three years. Um, I've trained in the gi. I've competed in the gi back in my blue belt days. I competed in the gi a lot. In fact, I was at one point primarily a gi competitor. Really? Oh, yeah. When I was a blue belt, I trained under Vitor Shellen before I went to Henzo's, mm. and they were much more gi focused. Right, and um, that was that was my focus as well. But I lost interest in the gi for a number of reasons. Um, honestly, the biggest reason more than anything else was because I had a lot of finger and wrist injuries from grip oh, fighting. God. <laughs> yeah. <So> yeah. <laughs> and that's funny. You mentioned Cobrino because he has a style that is, I mean, he does tap people out, but his style is mm-hmm. much more a positional dominance, uh, pressure based game. I actually yeah. have people that I train with and friends that I have that, intentionally dislike his style because he is so focused on breaking the spirit of his opponent rather than like, mm-hmm. I mean, he always moves forward. He always moves right. forward, but he he's very picky about how he, how he engages. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though he's always relentless in his attack, he's, I think he's more of a positional fighter first. Like you won't make careless mistakes ever. I've never seen Cobrinha mm. dive for something that, you know, he didn't think he could get, but I love Cobrinha. I love his style. And, uh, you know, he's had some some pretty impressive uh, wins over the years, even against bigger opponents. Like I just saw something pop up on my feed the other day where he beat, uh, who was it, Lovato in the Gi. And I watched oh, wow. that match. I'm like, fuck, man, this is Damn. crazy. Lovato's huge compared to Cobrinha. And Cobrinha managed to beat him on, I think he swept him and almost, mm. and I think he got an advantage too. So like, okay. man, I love Cobrinha. His style yeah. is sick. Yeah, he's the, he's the man. Well, I, I was just going to say that just if people are curious, I stopped in, uh, competing in the gi because of my, my wrists and my fingers. And also at the same time, I happened to also start to gain an interest in leg locks. Those two things like happened to coincide at around the same time, uh, which sort of pushed me to where I am now. But anyway, so, okay. So the thing about Cobrinha that I think is interesting that you bring up. So like the reason why Cobrinha is my favorite grappler is because He's an expression of like really calculated, consistent engagement. Like, here's a question. How frequently do you see Cobrinha stall? I don't think I've ever seen it. No. I mean, it's not about just being like, like what I'm getting at in terms of engagement. It's not about just like jumping on stuff like a crazy person or anything. Like, like I'm not even so much interested in that. I'm just interested in, I like, I'm much more interested in seeing like calculated, conservative engagement, but I want to see that 
done throughout the entire match. I want to see two people doing that throughout the entire match. For example, a competitor who I think is very, very good at gaming the ADCC rule set is uh, Richard Alarcon. He is very good at it. You know, I mean, he's beaten people who I think he beat John Callisine and Gianni Grippo. And no, no offense to Richard, but I do think both of those guys, in terms of like skill as grapplers, I think that they're better grapplers, especially mm-hmm. Gianni. I think Gianni's one of the best in the world. But mm-hmm. Richard, to his credit, shut both of them down and beat them in the ADCC rule set. And that's impressive in its own way. But like, if you look at how he did it, I mean, he's like very clearly not trying to like pass their guard, right? Like, they, or like another example in the EBI rule set, this is like a recent one. It's a pretty egregious one. Is like Mason Fowler versus Craig Jones. It was a little. Mason was a little better in the second one in terms of which one. Uh, Either uh, uh, both of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it was pretty much the same thing that happened. I guess. Yeah, I mean, he was a little better in the second one. He definitely did engage a little bit more. And like also, again, to his credit, like he's a competitor. He's doing what he has to do to win, right? Like it's nobody's fault other than the rule sets and to some extent Craig's. Because like, if I was Craig, honestly. For that second match, I just would have worked nothing but back control and armbar. I would have assumed it's going to overtime because it's oh, just I think too- so for sure. And I think anyone yeah. doing EBI tournaments should honestly have that mindset. Yeah, because I think if you if you submit someone in regulation in EBI, it's like it's kind of a bonus. I almost assume, <laughs> yeah. you know, you go against high level guys. It's like, well, this is more than likely going to go to overtime, you know, right? Like you can't you it's very difficult to control your opponent to the point where you can force them to engage. Right. A lot of the time your opponent will just back up, back up. So but what you can control is getting excellent on in the spider web and the rear mount positions. It's interesting that you say that because that's a kind of what my criticism of the rule set is, because like that's a very clear gaming of the rule set to optimize the degree to which you achieve victory. And it's to me, like I'm interested in like EBI OT from the perspective solely of like, like developing those positions. Like I watched the OT event, you know, it was interesting. You got to see people really like pursue certain things in those positions, but that's like overall, it's like very limited in terms of like what it can show us. You know, I want to see, grappling engagement in my opinion the ideal rule set like my favorite rule set it's a you don't see it that much it's a kasai rules or like naga has the north american grappling association they have pretty similar rules where you see points rewarded both for positional advancement and for submission offense when you watch kasai you tend to see people engaging more now there haven't been that many kasai events so we don't we don't really we're not dealing with that much data here so it's hard to really make big inferences from this it could just be that the grapplers that they happened to pick wanted to engage but you tend to see i think more engagement and and i don't think that i do think the rule set has to some extent encouraged that where like there's less incentive to stall you still see it but it's it you don't see it as much like I said, there's two ways we can take this. You can either try to change the rule set, which is really, it's not going to happen. Or you can just recognize it for what it is and just try to ignore it. And that's not to say, like, like if I'm in a match and it, it, the choice between winning and losing is doing something in accordance with what the rule set encourages me to do, I'm going to do that. You know, it's interesting you bring this up because this is something that we've talked about before on the podcast. There's this weird paradox where over the long term, there's things that we all say that you should do in jujitsu because Mm -hmm. that's how you get better. 
But in the short term, like in any one individual match where there's a certain set of win conditions, a certain opponent, perhaps mm. a certain amount of time or a way to train, you know, sometimes the things you have to do to win an individual battle are very different from the things that you have to do to win the actual war. Like a lot of the things we always say you should do, you know, keep it playful. Don't be afraid to, to lose in the gym. Don't be afraid to try new things. You know, uh -huh. uh, we, we say a lot on the podcast, for example, free sharing of information is almost always over the long term better than trying to keep things secret and having secret techniques. But in the short term, you know, you kind of have to go in a 180 sometimes in mm -hmm. an individual situation, or at least there is that temptation to do so like you're talking about here. And that can create a lot of pressure on someone who yeah. maybe they have a certain way that they want to train and a certain set of principles. But in any given moment, sometimes those principles are hard to follow because they can work against you. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you have to have that hard conversation with yourself where basically you say like, is there a caveat to my principles? Do I have to compromise my principles? Mm -hmm. That's a hard discussion that any competitor is going to have to have with themselves. What I was going to say is actually kind of a response to that, actually. Basically, I think it's okay as long as it doesn't become the trend, right? Like, exceptions are all right as long as they don't become the norm. Again, if I'm in a match and it comes down to, like, I, and I've done this, and I, I don't feel very bad about this, to be honest. Like, I had a match in Dallas, Texas, where I engaged for about four minutes, 30 seconds. It was a five-minute match. It was a points match. I'd taken the guys back twice. I was going up a weight class and the guy was fucking strong as shit. I'd taken his back twice and I had spent the entire match controlling him. But then he got out with 30 seconds left and I was so fucking gassed. I was jet lagged from the flight and I just spent four and a half minutes controlling this fucking really strong guy. <laughs> and with 30 seconds left, I was like, all right, <laughs> we're done. I just basically stalled for 30 seconds. And like, you can say that that's a compromise on my principles. And it is to some extent, but like the point is like I had spent most of the match grappling in a way that I'm proud of, right? So I'm not – I don't really give a shit about the last 30 seconds of the match. Does that, does that make sense to you what I'm saying? 100%. One time I pulled Turtle inside Matt's guard. Oh, so man. I am all about lazy stalling. Oh, God. Let's not talk right. about this stupid <laughs> shit again. Let's keep this shit – come on. <laughs> Jeez. Um <laughs> You like turtle, Robert? Well, it's fun. Big, big position for you, eh? Well, it's, it's funny. In that match, what actually went up happening was, I think the guy, I forget exactly, but if I'm not mistaken, I think what happened was he got out of my back and he came on top and he went to pass my guard and I just turtled up and I was like, all right, we're done. <laughs> I, I think that's actually what I did. Yeah. <laughs> Take that, Matt. Eat shit. Turtle rocks. Yeah. <laughs> turtle does rock, but don't go there. It's not right. like, I go there when my guard's about to get passed. It's... You need to know it, but Steve's got this hard on for the turtle position. Really interesting. Hey, I'll tell you why. It's because <laughs> you can humiliate people, but there is nothing more humiliating than getting tapped out by a dude in turtle. That's why I like turtle. It sends a message. That's not going to happen. Oh, no. Not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so on that topic, like, I actually think it's interesting to watch people, like, take something that's, like, really obscure and, like, maybe kind of stupid and like go really far with it. You know what I mean? Like turtle as a guard. Eduardo Teles did this, right? And it's kind of like Eduardo Teles explicitly went into EBI. Like if you remember the interviews, he was talking about this. He said, my goal is to, <laughs> is to stall to OT every round and then not submit them in OT 
rack up more riding time and win the event this way. And like, because it's, so, it, that sort of sounds like what is the worst thing ever based on like what I think grappling, like what it can be. But like, that's actually so like, <laughs> I actually like that a lot because it's just like, well, sometimes strategy is really fucking ugly, right? Like that's one of the beautiful things about strategy is that yeah. if you find an opening and, and a lot of the time, this is something I've noticed, especially in jujitsu. People get really dogmatic about what's proper and what's not. But sometimes if you can question those things, Mm -hmm. you might actually realize, you know what? There's no good reason not to do this. The only reason people don't do it Mm -hmm. is because someone at some point decided this is like poor etiquette, even though it's technically legal. I mean, footlocks are a great example of that. You know, Mm -hmm. Matt and I grew up in the time when there were still people saying that footlocks are a dirty thing that you shouldn't do. And there's no reason for that. But at some point, someone opened that box and they realized, you know what, there's this whole level of untapped knowledge that we weren't even looking into simply because someone got really dogmatic about the whole thing. I think that turtle is frowned upon in jujitsu for a variety of reasons, mostly that come down to the the fact that you can't really score from there. Mm -hmm. But I think that actually, and and, you know, we were talking to Preet about this. I think that someone at some point is going to find a wedge there or a a strategy there that actually is is going to prove to be surprisingly effective. That said, though, I I agree with Matt that like it's a primarily defensive position. It's not the kind of thing that you want to do because you want to kick someone's ass, right? It's it's usually a reset and recovery position. Yeah, right. But absolutely if ibjjf decides okay now you can score from turtle or now you can get sweeps from positions where you don't have a guard you're gonna totally see the turtle system explode you're gonna see people exhaust that position i i always say what if ibjjf allowed uh heel hooks mm-hmm. like, and i think they should allow heel hooks at the black belt level even in the gi 100 i think it's crazy that you you can be a black belt but not have any knowledge of heel hooks whatsoever and you know let's just say that they did do that uh-huh. i mean can you imagine the crossover between open guard spider guard and then like going for heel hooks i mean there's systems there just waiting to be tapped but nobody does because mm. very rarely do you see heel hook competition uh sorry gi competitions that allow heel hooks yeah it's actually interesting that you bring that up because i have a, a hot take on that topic that i think would probably surprise a lot of people and which i think illustrates some of the points that i've been getting at throughout the podcast i'm really interested in looking at why Brazil has tended to historically dominate ADCC competition, especially since the onset of the trials. Okay. The trials began, the first ADCC trials were for the 2003 ADCC. And I think we can say that's the beginning of the modern ADCC. Okay. Because before that, you only had invitations and you actually, before 2003, saw more people from different countries winning ADCC. Uh, sorry, not winning, but getting medals. Okay. Like there was a Belarusian guy who got two medals. There was an Italian guy that got two medals. Um, there's a Japanese guy that got a gold. Um, there was a South African guy that got a gold, you know, Americans, uh, one and of course Brazilian. So there was a, there was a bit more diversity before the onset of the trials. And then when the trials were instituted, you saw in 2003, there was one Norwegian guy, John Olavinamo, who was an invite. And then after that, the next people to even medal that were not, I'm talking the men's division only. Women's have always been more, more varied, but for, for men's divisions only, the next two people to even medal that were not Brazilian or American, were Craig Jones and Lachlan Giles. 
so from 2003 to when Craig Jones and Lachlan Giles got their respective medals, no one from any other country than Brazil or America even got a medal. Wow. Crazy to think about. Yeah. And that started when the trials began. So let's ask ourselves, so what happened when the trials began? You began to see a huge influx of the the, the most consistent uh, high performers in ADCC have been Brazilian trials winners. I haven't run all the numbers on this yet. I plan on doing it for a video I'm going to make. But I, I have to imagine, I think something like 50% plus, if you just do a casual look at it, of ADCC gold medalists or just medalists, period, were people who won trials. Like such a hyper uh, South American trials specifically. Okay. There's never been a European trials winner to even medal. And there's never been, uh, other than Craig Jones and Lachlan, an Asian trials winner to medal. Th- those are the two exceptions. And so like, okay, so what makes, what's different about what the Brazilian trials winners were doing that, that everyone else wasn't doing to the same extent? Okay. Bomba? <laughs> <laughs> well, Steroids yeah, but I, sure. But in the modern day, you know, I, I, you don't think, you know, some European guys are doing that? Definitely. You know what I mean? I assume so. Yeah. I mean, maybe that, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I have no idea, but I think the single biggest thing is that the Brazilian trials winners were, normally primarily IBJJF competitors. The competitions they had access to were primarily IBJJF centered. So why would that push them to achieve long-term consistent results in ADCC? It's because the highest percentage strategy to victory in ADCC is one which is centered. So Marcelo Garcia figured this out. He describes it in his book, The X-Guard. In 2001, in the 77 kg bracket, Sanae Kakuta won a gold medal, and he is the only Asian grappler to ever win a gold medal. If you go and you look at that, the world's run, right? You'll see that the way he's grappling follows a certain core algorithm. What Kakuta is doing, and I don't know if this was deliberate or not, I've never spoken to the guy, but what he's doing clearly is what Marcelo also believed you should do, which is from the guard position, don't worry about submitting them. If they expose themselves, you can take the submission, but the main goal should be break the man down to his hips, from which point you look to pass his guard. He might turtle up and then you take his back, or you might pass his guard. Either of those are good outcomes. And and at ADCC, people usually turtle up and try to run away and they get their back taken. So that core algorithm, if you see that, that sort of core positional algorithm is the optimal strategy for winning in ADCC rules. Okay. Mm. Now I watch a lot of IBJJF, but I'm going to be honest with you. It's almost all nogi. Okay. So yeah. it's, uh, someone may be listening to this and saying, that's not what they do in the gate. I, I, I don't know. May, that may, may very well be the case that I, what I'm describing is not accurate for gi competition. Okay. Fair enough. In fact, I would guess maybe it's not. Are people, I don't know even know what people are doing in the gi nowadays. But for Nogi, it's definitely the case. If you watch like European, the, the Euros, the Nogi Euros, the IBJF Nogi Euros. And I would imagine the early days of the Mundials were pretty similar to this. I think the only reason it would deviate in the modern days, cause you have a lot of like worm guard foolishness going on, right? Like, and I don't mean that in a bad way to, to call it foolishness. I'm just saying like that sort of like gaming stuff. You know what I mean? Mm. Competing under the IBJJF rule set encouraged certain behaviors, which my theory as it is right now is what has allowed the Brazilians to historically dominate ADCC. Now, 
that might seem strange coming from someone who has, if you, I, I think most people would categorize me as like a submission only grappler, right? Like I'm a leg lock guy, right? Mm. The thing is, is like the core behaviors encouraged by something like EBI are not going to consistently produce people to win under ADCC rules. Now, if you look at the Asian and Oceania trials, two countries historically dominate. Okay. It's Australia with 22 golds and then Japan has 22 as well. They're, they're tied right now. Okay. For 22 golds. I don't know who's medaled more. It's hard to get stats for that, but the golds you can see that's available easy. Okay. If you look at like how Japanese grapplers, you, you go and you look at how they've, how they've historically tended to grapple. They've been much more submission oriented, right? Yeah. Like catch wrestling style. Yeah. Exactly. Similarly, if you look at Europe, the two countries, or we could say two regions that have always done best at Euro trials are Poland and Scandinavia, especially Finland. Finland has always done very well at the Euro trials. I don't know as much about Scandinavian grappling, but Polish grappling, I do. I'm a big fan of Polish grappling. Mm-hmm. Polish grapplers are very much like Japanese grapplers. They'll, they'll just like jump on submissions. I asked my friend, uh, Mateusz Gamra, who is a Polish grappler who's won trials twice. And I asked him, why do Polish guys love leg locks so much. Why do you guys always jump on submissions? I thought maybe it was like a Sambo thing. And he said to me, he's like, we're just crazy. <laughs> and I, was like, I was like, okay. But like, so, good answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like, so the, like if you watch Polish guys, they'll let themselves get broken like a lot. Those oh, guys don't okay. give a shit, but it's interesting that sort of a strategic mindset hasn't performed very well at ADCC worlds, right? Sometimes that willingness to jump on subs and stuff, it, it hasn't worked out. ADCC was designed to allow that type of a grappler and the more positional grapplers to both do well because you've got the, the no points period, right? But like, right. it hasn't really played out like that. The Brazilians have always dominated. And really the reason that I, my theory, again, this is just a theory. I, I'm, I want to do a lot more research on this. I, before the podcast, I was actually watching old European trials. I really think this is possibly what accounts for this discrepancy, but I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I, I think that the existence of the IBJJF tournament infrastructure in Brazil and to later to the, in the United States allowed a consistent development of certain skills. And those, because you didn't allow leg locks, people were the optimal strategy was like leg locks are like enticing. They they're like jump on me. It's right there, right? Like without having that temptation, people pursued. I think what is actually the optimal strategy. Now the mistake those guys made was that that means you should never pursue leg locks. I think the perfect grappler is someone, and it's not about every single thing he does. It's just about like the core matter in which he goes about uh, working in matches. Is someone like Gordon Ryan, where he has a clear preference for getting on top, working to pass the guard, um, taking the back, but he will also attack your legs. And he will frequently mm-hmm. use an attack on the legs to gain positional advancement. So anyway, I think when you look at this, one thing that you can draw from it, if, if I'm right, is you can see the extent to which a certain rule set encouraged certain behaviors 
which in a, in a competitive arena proved very beneficial. Um, I, I actually talked about this on a different podcast. Um, what a, what a Wittgenstein's ladder is. A Wittgenstein's ladder is a, a, an educational tool. It's where we, you give someone like a white lie in a sense at an early stage of their development so as to encourage them to go down a certain road without being tempted to go down another road, which will not let me just give an example. It'd probably be easier. If you have like a white belt, you're trying to teach them back control. One of the first things you tell them is don't cross your legs. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Yeah. But we all know I almost always cross my legs with a body triangle or then when I go, I like to, I'm big on the straight jacket system. I like to trap hands by crossing my ankles. That's my preferred way to trap an arm. I, I prefer to cross my legs rather than put my leg behind someone's back. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then like it very clearly is the case you can cross your legs. But if you allow a white belt to do it, what happens is they get caught in that stupid footlock, you know, like and they they come to the conclusion that oh, I shouldn't cross my legs. They need to develop a certain sensitivity to the position before you can allow them to cross their legs. So what you do is you tell them, don't cross your legs. <laughs> okay. And what's interesting is the IBJJF rule set in a sense, I think can be viewed as a Wittgenstein's ladder for the Brazilian grapplers in a sense where it's not that leg locks are bad and it's not that like um, rolling Kimuras or jumping arm locks are not good because clearly they are, right? There's numerous examples of these things being used spectacularly in competition. Right. It's just that a tendency to focus on that over a conservative systematic progression of position towards the basically the back control position has historically tended to underperform at the world championships. And by world championships, I mean ADCC. Yeah, I I think you're totally right. Mm -hmm. That's a great example with the crossing of the ankles, not awarding points. I think another, uh, what what did you call it? Wittgenstein's ladder? Yeah, it's, it's called the Wittgenstein's ladder. Yeah. So another, another example in under IBJJF rule set would be, uh, reversals not from the guard aren't worth anything. Mm -hmm. And so it puts an emphasis on the athletes to get really good at re-guarding and then sweeping from the guard. Now, I'm not a fan of that rule. Interesting. I think it's kind of silly. Like, I think if... If you're in turtle and you wrestle from your knees up and you get on top, yeah. or if you are in bot- even bottom side control and you reverse your opponent, you end up on top. I mean, I think that that should be a, a scorable position. Mm-hmm. Then again, I tend to think that even like a crucifix with both arms trapped should be awarded points too, because that is such a powerful position as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a fan of the body triangle not being awarded uh, any points, right? So Yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> Agreed 100%. Yeah, I think that, you know, I look at a lot a lot of these things as kind of training wheels. You know, the ankle cross thing is a great example where that is a great piece of information to give to white belts so they don't do something stupid. But like training wheels, at some point, those things have to come off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was funny. We were talking to John Thomas about this. And the issue is a lot of the time people hear these things and they take them as commandments. Yeah. And, and they never really outgrow from that mindset that, no, it's actually okay to cross your ankles just if you know what you're doing. Um, there's a lot of great examples of that. I mean, I remember when I started jujitsu, my instructor told, you know, white belt Steve, when someone mounts you, you go for like the, you know, the home alone where you basically put your hands up by your face. Mm-hmm. And I did that for years. And then, by the time I got to purple belt, I remember at one point my instructor was like, why are you always doing that? You know, it's yes, it's important to protect your neck, but at some point you got to get the fuck out of there. Right. And you might need to use your hands to shrimp or something. So this advice that you get in the early days, it's training wheels. And I do think that the IBJJF does a very good job of 
creating a system um, and creating a rule set that encourages positional dominance. But Mm -hmm. I do agree that there's a lot of weird quirks to it. Like ultimately, they want you to favor the guard. Clearly, in the eyes of the IBJJF, there is a best way to get on top of someone if you're on the bottom, right? And like Matt said, you know, the fact that you can't score off of reversals, the fact that you can't score off of like turtle wrestling... I think that's a mistake. Uh, I think also the fact that knee reaps are not legal is a huge black eye when it comes to the IBJJF. I mean, as someone who trains almost exclusively in the gi, I find it challenging because I can't even really learn leg locks because even if I want to, you know, I've got to find training partners who want to. And most people Mm -hmm. in the gi, like they've got a way of training. They're training for this rule set. So even if you want to actually learn that stuff in the gi, I found that at some point you got to take the gi off and go to a different club, which is unfortunate. So I, I would love to see those things change in that rule set. Maybe that's just me, but I think Matt, you probably agree too. Yeah, for sure. And I just wanted to just touch on what you were discussing, Robert, about how IBJJF encourages certain behaviors. And maybe that's why, you know, the Brazilians have dominated ADCCs for that period of time. And I I think you're totally right. And I think it is because the emphasis of positional play. And I guess if we're being specific, it's more of the emphasis on you know, sweeping and passing essentially, and even taking the back. Whereas mm-hmm. wrestlers don't necessarily have, I mean, they can wrestle up, uh, but they're not like technical sweepers. They're not using like X guard and th- things like that necessarily, at least back then. I mean, nowadays there's very good grapplers that are well-versed in wrestling and guard playing, but in that time frame, you know, the, the wrestlers, even they weren't necessarily even superb passers, you know, they were just like, basically would uh would play on top and then stall out and and win in that you know or force force a guard pull in overtime or whatever right but the brazilians can play from everywhere you know and if you're a brazilian who is who has a fantastic guard you know you're you're a guard player by trade but then you learn some wrestling as well that can go a long way in a tournament like that so uh definitely i am i not mistaken in that that's what you're implying with the ibjjf rule set encouraging certain strategies yeah, definitely. So one of my initial theories was that, and I think this is still true, but I think it, it doesn't paint the whole picture. My initial theory was that having a, a consistent competitive community encourages the development of, of athletes over time, right? But that doesn't paint the whole picture because the first trials, it, it, Europe has always had a very consistent set of ADCC tournaments. If you look at the ADCC open tournaments, they're mostly set in Europe, sometimes in Asia, but like honestly, mostly in Europe. There have been a couple in North America, but like they're pretty consistently in Europe. They'll be in countries like Poland, Ireland, England, Hungary, they're, they're all over Europe. And they've always been like that. The ADCC Federation is mainly run by European guys, Poles and Finns. And the Poles and the Finns always, like I said, they've historically tended to dominate the European trials, and there's never been a shortage of ADCC rules tournaments in Europe. So the question is like, okay, if that's the case, if it's only about having access to consistent competitive infrastructure, why don't these guys win 
more consistently. And there are there are so many different reasons. I might even in a couple years or maybe in a couple months come to the conclusion that my theory about the IBJJF was completely off base. That maybe like here's another theory that I have. Maybe it's possible that more of the European grapplers tended to be solely hobbyists. That maybe it was harder to make a living teaching jiu-jitsu in Europe versus Brazil and the United States. So therefore the guys who were doing the Euro trials were historically hobbyists. I don't actually know if that's the case, but that's another thing that I thought of that we could possibly point to as accounting for why the Brazilian guys have done so much better at ADCC Worlds. Because it's it's super noticeable that the European guys and the Asian guys don't do that well, you know? And so I want to analyze what accounts for this community skill discrepancy, right? You know what I mean? Like skill discrepancy between these communities. And I think it goes back to earlier what I was talking about when it comes to the way in which rule sets encourage certain behavior and that pushes us to develop skills in certain ways. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you talk about – so I I don't actually think passing is that important in ADCC. It's not so much passing per se because guard passing is actually, I think, not the most important thing in ADCC. It's – Creating back exposure? Yeah, well, like it's the thing that I think accounts for the Brazilians' success, which I think it's possible that they got from competing mainly in IBJF tournaments, is this mindset of focusing primarily on positional progression. Because in ADCC, you do see much more back exposure, right? Like you see, like very rarely are passes actually scored. The the way in which most people score sweeps are very high in terms of scoring, and then back takes. I think those are probably the two highest. Like you don't see a ton of takedowns. And you don't see a ton of passes. You see much more. I think actually back takes probably take the cake for like highest point scoring in ADCC. But it's just that general strategy of like pursuing positional progression over everything else. For me, that's like, I'm like very interested in the way in which these given competitive communities have been pushed to develop skills over time that has resulted in them winning. Basically, all I'm getting at, the main wider point that I'm getting at throughout the entire podcast has been this idea of like... When we look at like what's valuable about jujitsu or about grappling, it so rarely is just about winning, uh, though I think we can say that maybe it's a part of it. It's more so about the pursuit of something, of having a path through which you can develop skills over time and how that affects you, uh, as a person, how it like, it brings about like positive, like mental states and such and how that can sometimes be in conflict with like the needs of a competition. And then also, I've also been trying to get at the sense in which like looking at how competition pushes you to act in certain ways and how that can yield positive results over time in the competition itself, but might be at odds with what maybe would be better for you in terms of your, like what you really are trying to get out of jujitsu, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. I mean, this is very much in line with a lot of the the concepts and ideas we've discussed on the show here and this this weird paradox of how you have this internal set of principles as to how, the kind of grappler you want to be and why you do this but then under any given rule set at any given point in time there are these external pressures that sort of pull you away from those and maybe make you ask yourself if you need to start optimizing under this rule set or optimizing for this particular match. Mm -hmm. And I think that anyone who does this professionally, they have to juggle and balance those two competing sets of demands. And I think that what you said earlier is probably the best way to do it, which is 
it's okay to have exceptions as long as they don't become the rule. Mm -hmm. You know, you can tailor exceptions to any given battle, but at the end of the day, you always want to come back to your principles and remember why you're doing this and be consistent with that. Yes, that's like put it better than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, again, Robert, thank you so much for joining us. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. This was a a really interesting and deep conversation. I went to a lot of places that I didn't expect it to go and that I'm not really familiar with anyone else having this conversation. So, So thank you again for joining us. And I guess before we tie up, are there any closing thoughts or anything that you want to plug? If there's anywhere where listeners could go to learn more about you, where would they go? Yeah, if you want to learn more about me, best places would be either my YouTube channel, which is just my name, uh, Robert, D-E-G-L-E-B-J-J, and uh, my Instagram, same thing. Those would be the best places. And uh, just a, a closing remark would be, I'm very interested moving forward, like with my career, with all these things that I've been I've been talking about, in trying to look at how... I can develop students who both have the right mindset when it comes to jujitsu and pursuing engagement and like grappling in, in the right spirit while also having competitive success. Like it's a, it's a tenuous balance, but it's, it's one that I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how it can be navigated. Cool. And one thing I wanted to mention, um, I've become recently become a pretty big fan of Roberts, uh, watching the, you know, his Instagram stories are, incredibly comprehensive breakdowns of old classic ADCC matches. I've learned a ton just watching his videos. And if you watch his competition footage, you can see that he is describing pretty much what we've been talking about the whole episode about uh, not fighting like a coward, which is, I think, a great (laughs) instructional name. (laughs) But uh, just watching him go for, you know, pressure from the bottom, entering in and finishing. This is kind of In my opinion, it's kind of the crowd-pleasing grappling that I think most people want to see. So definitely check out Robert's uh, YouTube and also his Instagram. You're going to definitely learn a lot and sort of take a a look at some of the systems that he uses. So, And uh, I just want to say thanks a lot, Rob, for coming on the show. Uh, it's It's been a pleasure. We should totally have you back on sometime if you're into it. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks. Again, thanks for having me. I think this type of like long form discussion podcasts can yield a lot of like really positive results. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you again. And of course, to our listeners, if you want to support us, you know how to do it. Uh, we, you can go to patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. That's the single best thing that you can do to support the show. Additionally, we provide a bunch of premium and expanded content there. If you want to go deeper into these concepts that we talk about here again, Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. Hope this was valuable to all of our listeners thank you for your attention and we'll talk to you guys next time